In fact, so I mean, it, it, <laughs> so to, I guess I should start with what I should start with. He is risen. He is risen. Christ is risen. Amen. Uh, wow, what a wonderful day. Um, part of the song that Janet was just singing says, uh, He holds the future, and life is worth the living because He lives. And this is a large part of, of what I really want to talk about today, which is this idea that I, I think in, uh, certainly in ancient times, we as Christians, we kind of have this cheat sheet as to how it all should unfold. Uh, but in ancient times, they were not anticipating a resurrection in the middle of history. They were re- uh, expecting a resurrection at the end of history, when we'd all be resurrected together. But what we get is a plot twist in the form of Jesus' resurrection. And because he lives, and because he is resurrected, well, he is, what Paul says, the first fruits of this thing that is to come, namely our resurrection. This idea that at some point in the future, you and I will participate in the very thing that Christ himself demonstrated 2,000 years ago. Today and over the coming weeks, I want to talk about um, what the resurrection means. Uh, what it means, uh, not just in a, like a theological or abstract sense, uh, but what it means to me. And, and what it means to you, and why it's significant uh, in our lives to this very day. Uh, and, and this is what I hope uh, to get us to. But before we begin that, let's begin with a word of prayer. <clears throat> Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you are in this place. We can feel your presence, and we give you glory and honor and praise. Lord, in these moments that sit before us, uh, we ask that you speak to our hearts, that you speak to our minds too, but, but that you change our hearts, that you pierce those places that haven't been pierced in a while, that have grown cold, that we've shielded off from the possibility of change. But Lord, we know that your death and your resurrection make all things new make all things possible. And God, there are parts of us that you want, that you desire. And so this morning, Lord, we ask that you take it all. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, I want to begin today uh, with uh, going back to the Colossians passage, if you will. Uh, If you've got your Bible or the one that's in front of you in the pew back, Um, Go ahead and turn uh, back to Colossians chapter 3, and we'll read uh, verses 1 through 4. It was the shorter of the two. Uh We'll get to the other one uh, in a minute. Uh, This one is particularly interesting to me. Uh, It does fit quite well uh, with an Easter Sunday setting, because it talks about resurrection, Uh, The other one, you might have thought, the one from Luke, uh, the one that was about loving your enemies, you might have thought, well, this is an odd reading uh, for for, uh, an Easter because it doesn't tell the resurrection story. Um, But you needed to come to the earlier service uh, to get that story. Uh, But my guess is most of us 
uh, are familiar with it on some level or another anyway. But Colossians 3 starts this way. It says, If then you have been raised with Christ, and let's just stop for a second, because there's this weird thing going on. The question you must ask yourself is, have you been raised with Christ? What does that even mean? Like in some past tense kind of way. If then you have been raised with Christ. Paul's assuming that there is some sort of continuity with uh, what has happened in the Colossians past and this, frankly, future idea of a resurrection that we all still await. And Paul is certainly still awaiting in his own self and in the, the people at Colossae. But here he says, if, if you've been raised, well then, seek the things that are above because this is where Christ is. Seek those things. Seek the things that are above where Christ is. He is seated at the right hand of God. And set your minds on things that are above and not on the things of earth. And I feel I need to add a little caveat here uh, as to what Paul is both saying and, and not saying by talking about the things of earth. Because my guess is some of us have this idea of earth that it's, well, it's just all going to be destroyed and it's all awful anyway and it's all, uh, you know, just going to burn up in a fire someday. Uh, I don't think that's actually what Paul is saying here. In fact, if you just skip down a few lines to verse 5, the part we're not going to really read or, or dig too much into, he does say what the things of earth are. At least he starts to. He gives us a, a summary list, and he, he says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, and then he gives, like, a few examples, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry, and he goes on in verse 8, anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk, etc., etc., right? And he's saying, these are the things of earth, Right? Namely, those things that have been corrupted. But here's what Paul, I don't think, is saying. There are some things on this earth and in this earth because God made this place good that remain good. And we can find goodness and beauty and truth in and among this place we call earth and each other. And I don't think Paul has some sort of uh, idea that we must completely flee from it in order to find what is good or true or beautiful. But he is definitely saying that all of those things that are corrupt among us, well, we should not be setting our minds on those things. We should be setting our minds on the things that are, as he says, above and then in verse 3, he says it again. He says, you have died. He's speaking to living people, of course. Uh, but he, here he says again, you, you've died at some point in your past. You've died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, 
who is your life, appears, well, then you also will appear with him in glory. These are the sorts of things we say when we baptize people, the sorts of things I say uh, when we, we go into the waters up there and we baptize uh, uh, new Christians. We say that you have died to your old way of being and you have been raised with Christ. You have been raised to a, a new life, a new creation. And there is a, a certain truth in that. But those of us who have been in the room uh, long enough and been going to church long enough and, and who were baptized maybe years and years ago, we know that there's a, a way in which some of those old habits or some of the old self, it manages to stick around a little bit. And in my opening prayer this morning, I talked about God, God piercing the places of our hearts that have grown cold, because sometimes that happens too. But on a morning like this, Easter, where all things are possible, because we serve a risen Lord, somebody who was dead and was raised from the dead. If that means anything, it means all things are now possible. Well then, so too, whatever it is you've been shielding in your heart, it too can be put to death, and a new life can be given to you. When in baptism you died to sin and you rose again to Christ, sometimes we might find that it is hard to believe this when temptation comes and it whispers in our ear, because admittedly, I fail, you fail, we all fail, and we all struggle. And the Christian life is, is, is not for the, the faint of heart. It is the person who's willing to struggle and to fight and to persevere. But when that temptation comes and does whisper in your ear, the Christian response to this, of course, is, is no. No, I died with Christ. I am a new creation. That is not who I am. That was my old self. The old self that found itself on that cross up there when Jesus died on my behalf. And the new self that I now am, well, I found that in this empty tomb down here when Jesus raised up from the grave. That's who I am. We're talking about identity. We're talking about who are you. I am not the person that I put up there. I am the person that was raised from the dead with Christ. This is the exact language that Paul uses, and he uses it of us in a past tense sort of way. We died, and we have been raised. This is what Paul says. One of my favorite theologians is named N.T. Wright, 
And uh, he kind of has this one drum that he beats over and over and over again. And, and it goes like this. He says that the world that we're in, uh, we shouldn't be thinking of it in terms of it uh, you know, being burned up. And, and then we, uh, in our salvation, just get ushered off to heaven somewhere uh, and we leave this place behind. I know there's like lots of songs about this, but it, it makes for very poor theology is what he argues. And I, I, I tend to agree with him. Because instead, what we find in the cross and in the resurrection is not that Jesus is ushering us away somewhere, it's that Jesus is redeeming what is. He's redeeming this place and he's redeeming us for a future that has already begun. And in this way, there's continuity. There's continuity between the life that we now live and the life that is yet to be lived. We are in this middle space, however, where we both understand the old self and, man, we really are waiting for that new self to take full hold of who we are. And C.S. Lewis says it this way. He says that every day... We are either being turned into more hellish figures or more heavenly figures. What is it that you are being turned into? Christ's resurrection, which is what we are celebrating today, must be intimately tied to what happened a few days ago, on Good Friday, which is Christ's death, right? These two things go hand in hand. They must. We, we can't really ever fully separate them apart from one another. The death and the resurrection of Christ, they must always be stuck together. And I would argue that they get stuck together in much the same way that justice and mercy get stuck together in God's economy, in, in the way God thinks about the world, in the way I try to think about the world. Justice and mercy. God's justice and mercy, they seem to be at odds with each other. Have you ever thought about this? I hope you have. Because to do justice, well, is to kind of do the opposite of mercy. And to be merciful oftentimes feels like not participating in the justice side of things. And yet, God's justice and God's mercy must be held together. You've got to have justice first, however. And this is something I think we often miss these days. The justice or, or the cross, it, it, it must come first. We must deal with the fact that there are these hideous things in the world, in my own soul. They must be dealt with. They must somehow, some way, be taken care of. And in the cross of Christ, we have the ultimate answer to the hideousness of this world. And in it, we find God's justice on full display. We have Good Friday dealing with with the justice that needs to be found in this world. But this is, of course, followed by the resurrection. 
The resurrection is the mercy of God being poured out on the world. We all have to wrestle with both of these things, however. Both personally on on an individual level, but also corporately. And I do believe it's a constant struggle in the life of a Christian. And I do think in this day and age, there's actually two errors. And maybe they're obvious enough. But there's two errors one could make. And the one is to skip over the justice side of things altogether and to jump straight to the forgiveness side. And to to try to live in a world where, oh, we don't take care uh, of the need for for some sort of uh, redemption because, well, God's taking care of that. And those things uh, that we participate in, the sin that still lives within us, well, you know, God's going to forgive us for those things. And this is an error. And we cannot live this way. We must root those things out. And this is certainly one error that happens regularly. We jump straight over top of Good Friday and and we hit Resurrection Sunday really big. And we get to the forgiveness side and the mercy side. But then in in this day and age, uh, if you haven't noticed, uh, there, there is the other two. There's, there's the uh, mercilessness of the world that we live in. And I would just simply point you to social media where the Twitter mob can get you at any point, right? And just keep digging at you. And mercy and forgiveness is nowhere to be found there. They're very happy, strangely, with a crucifixion. They're very happy with pinning you up on that cross, or me, or whoever. And they find no place for forgiveness or for mercy. But the fact of the matter is, we need both. We need both to operate well in this world. We need Good Friday, and we need Resurrection Sunday. We need to deal with those things that are wrong in our world, And then we need to have the mercy and the forgiveness to let it go. We must both die with Christ in order that we rise with Christ. We cannot skip the dying part, and we dare not skip the rising part. And the result? Well, the result is that we find ourselves in the mercy of the Almighty. And it becomes much easier to pull off some of Jesus' hardest sayings, which is what I gave you from the Luke 6 passage. You see, there's uh, these things that Jesus says in his ministry that you must think to yourself, well, that sounds impossible. Who could ever do that? I say this myself. And you should say this, too, if you take his word seriously. I'll read them again for you in a minute. But what I think Jesus is doing when he's giving us these descriptions or he's giving us uh, these statements about uh, who we should be and what we should do in this life, what he's really doing is he's giving us this picture of what's to come, of the life that's to come, and the sorts of people who live in the kingdom. And they're the sorts of people he describes in Luke 6. Here's what he says. 
He says, I say to you who hear, love your enemies. <laughs> love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Uh, it might help if you conjure up some people in your, in your mind. <laughs> who is your enemy, right? It's kind of the opposite question of who's your neighbor. Uh, some other figure in the Bible asked that question, but who's your enemy, right? You probably have one. Uh, you might be able to think of somebody. Then Jesus makes it very clear. Love your enemy and do good to those who hate you and bless those who curse you. That's the, the opposite of cursing is blessing, blessing, cursing, right? So when come, someone comes along and curse, bless them, he says. And pray for those who abuse you. Yikes. And to the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other. And from those who take your cloak, don't withhold your tunic either. Oh, you want my jacket? Sure, here's my tie uh, and my shirt as well, right, is what he's saying. Give to everyone who begs from you, and from one who takes away your goods, don't demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. Love your enemies. How in the world can we do that? Love your enemies. In some ways, the answer, I guess, sits very clearly before us on this special day, on this Easter day. Because just a few days ago on Good Friday, we were enemies with God. But God loved us enough that he might die for us in order to deal with all the hideousness and the garbage in our lives and then be raised again from the dead. How in the world do we love our enemies Sometimes I don't know, but God certainly demonstrates the way forward through Jesus Christ. This, however, cannot be mere sentimentality. We can't just kind of utter the words, love your enemies. I want to give you a story that might make it real. It's, uh, it's Corrie ten Boom, uh, kind of a classic tale here. Uh, in her book, The Hiding Place, Corrie ten Boom, a Christian woman, tells about how her family used to hide Jews from the Nazis during the Holocaust. And eventually, Corrie and her family were caught by the Nazis for doing this. They were sent off to one of the horrendous concentration camps. And at the concentration camp, Corrie saw some of the cruelest acts imaginable, perpetrated by one group of humans upon another. This is part of the hideousness and the garbage that I'm talking about, right? That we all know exists in this world. And sometimes we're even surprised just how bad it can get. Corey's whole family died, including her dear sister, Betsy. And after she had been freed from the camp, Corey would often speak in churches about Jesus and about his love. And she would even speak about his forgiveness. I can't imagine doing that myself, but she would. And she had a big heart. 
and she was able. And her faith, however, was challenged on one specific day. She says this in her journal. She says, It was at a church service in Munich that I saw him, a former SS man who had stood guard at the shower room door in the processing center at the concentration camp. And he was the first of our actual jailers that I had seen since that time. And suddenly, it was all there. The room full of mocking men, the heaps of clothing, Betsy's pain, blanched face. And this SS man, he came up to me as the church was emptying, and he was beaming, and he was bowing, and he said, how grateful I am for the message, Fräulein. To think that, he says, as you say, Jesus has washed my sins away. Can you put yourself in her shoes at this point? Can you imagine what she might be thinking and feeling, knowing that this man participated in the death, not just of uh, a bunch of people, but more specifically, her family and her dear sister? And he says, how grateful I am that Jesus has forgiven me my sins. Corey writes, his hand was thrust out to shake mine. And I, who had preached so often to the people the need to forgive, well, I kept my hand at my side. Even as the angry, vengeful thoughts boiled through me, I saw the sin of them. Jesus Christ had died for this man. Was I going to ask for more? Lord Jesus, I prayed, forgive me and help me to forgive him. I tried to smile. I struggled to raise my hand. I could not. I felt nothing, not the slightest spark of warmth or charity. And so again, I breathed a silent prayer. Jesus, I cannot forgive him. Give me your forgiveness. As I took his hand, the most incredible thing happened. From my shoulder, along my arm, and through my hand, a current seemed to pass from me to him, while into my heart sprang a love for this stranger that almost overwhelmed me. And so I discovered, writes Corey, that it is not our forgiveness any more than our goodness that the world's healing hinges on. It is on Christ's. When Christ tells us to love our enemies, he gives along with that command, the love itself. Wow. So Jesus gives us this passage in Luke 6, in which he tells us to do some very, very hard things, like love our enemies and, and do good to those who hate you and to bless those who curse you. And how in the world are we supposed to do these sorts of things? And the answer for Corey Tim Boom was, it is only through the power of Jesus Christ, and I believe this fully. But I think it's this other part too, and she probably got to it somewhere, I just haven't found it yet, but uh, it's this. 
It's, it's that in recognizing and in dealing with the injustice in my own heart, in the ways in which I've needed forgiveness in my own life, I've needed the transformation of Jesus Christ in me, that I find myself humbled and in a place where I can look at the other and see my own warped self in them, in their need for forgiveness, in their need for somebody who will come along and do good. Now, at some point, you should be thinking, Eric, you know what? It's great that God did all of this for us, but you know what? God's God, and we're just human, and he's asked us to do this impossible task. And sometimes I am, I promise, right there with you, because it does sound impossible. It seems unlikely that we could pull this off in real time. What Christ is describing, however, I do believe, is not the life that we live now, though it should be increasingly so. It is the life to come. It's the life in the kingdom. He is describing a world that you and I, if we are believers, we are meant to inhabit at some future point. He is describing the sorts of people we should be transformed into if we want to be people who enjoy the kingdom of God. And on that big resurrection day where we are all resurrected to live in the kingdom together, if we are not the kinds of people who do mercy and who love the enemy and who do good to those who do evil against us, we may not quite be ready for what's to come. Because that is, I believe, a vision for the sort of community that God is pulling together. The whole passage from Luke 6 that we read this morning concludes this way. It says, Love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. Right? It's kind of summarizing. And it says, Your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High. For he is kind to the ungrateful and to the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. And the key point, I think, here is that Jesus isn't just giving us advice here in, uh, on how to get ahead in this world. Frankly, uh, he's not giving us very good advice on how to get ahead in this world at all. If we follow Jesus' advice, we're likely to get uh, used or, or abused or, or we're likely to find people who will uh, take advantage of us. This isn't what we're preparing ourselves for. We're preparing our hearts and our minds and our very beings for the world that is to come. You're also, frankly, not filling up some cosmic piggy bank out there that uh, will be waiting for you when you die. What Jesus is offering to us is a new way to be human, a different kind of being. He desires that we be different kinds of people. And if you want to know what that looks like, all you have to do is look to the person of Christ himself. 
He's drawing us into himself, the one who did indeed forgive his enemies from the cross, who's crying out as he's hanging on the cross, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing, right? This is who Jesus is. And he's calling us into that sort of life, into that sort of living. I do believe these are kingdom criteria. We are meant to be people with humility and generosity and kindness and love, people filled with joy, people overflowing with mercy and forgiveness. And not that we're supposed to neglect the justice side of things. I've already said we need to deal with that justice side before we get to the forgiveness side. But man, if we can't get to that forgiveness side, we are missing what happens on Resurrection Sunday. We're going to conclude right now with a song called There is Power in the Blood. And I want to read to you a few lines out of it. Because I don't think this song makes a lot of sense unless we pair it with what's happening today, which is Easter Sunday and the resurrection. And it says that, would you be freed from the burden of your sin? It says there's power in the blood. There's power in what happened on Friday. Would you or evil a victory win? There's wonderful power in the blood. Would you be free from, the, from your passions and your pride? Come for a cleansing to Calvary's tide. And it's saying over and over again, what Jesus takes care of, the justice that is needed in your life and that is taken care of on the cross at Calvary on Good Friday. And then all of this makes sense in the wake of this morning. When Jesus is not found in that tomb, but he is found raised again from the dead. And he has defeated death, and he has defeated sin, and everything that was put up there has been taken care of as long as you're willing to put it up there. Are you willing to be freed from the burden of sin, from your passion, from your pride, do you want to be whiter than snow? We have a king who humbled himself to death, was raised again from the dead, and who is seated at the right hand of the Father, waiting with open arms for you to join him. Let's pray together.